You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Now, like Pastor Luke was saying at the beginning of the service, we, we don't ordinarily meet up here. Um, we're thankful for, for Vintage Church, uh, who's letting us use this space as we are awaiting our, our other space to be opened back up um, once COVID restrictions are lifted. Because we, we have a heart for the east side of, of Pittsburgh. And when my wife, Lauren, and I moved to the city nearly eight years ago to, to plant Renaissance Church, we had a common question on the tips of our tongues. That if we... What would happen if we were to ever leave the neighborhood that we are living in? Would our neighbors notice we are gone? Would they notice that it's a little bit more dark here and that light missing? Well, just the other day, we got to find out what would happen if we would have to leave our neighborhood. We just announced to our our neighbors and told them that, we have to move into a larger home uh, because we came here with no kids, family of two, and now we have four kids, a family of six. And some neighbors had tears in their eyes. Other neighbors were motivated to action to try to find contractors who can help us expand our current home. And they even came over for dinner one night to figure out how they can scheme to get us to stay. Because they told us, we love watching you parent. We love your hospitable presence that you have. We also like the food you cook, Rob. Um, But what they were saying underneath all those statements was, we long to have light in this neighborhood. See, whether I realize it or you realize it or not, we are who Jesus chose to be a light to the world to change the world. Now, if you were to pick a team of people to change the world, who would you pick? I mean, some of us might pick a, an influencer with a million plus followers. Some of us might find entrepreneurs and successful businessmen and successful leadership gurus. We would choose insiders, wouldn't we? But not Jesus. Jesus never chooses the insiders. He always chooses the outsiders. He chooses the people who are always picked last for kickball. He chooses the people who are always looked over because they didn't have the right networks of people. That's who Jesus picks. We can't forget that as we read these these words, we cannot read these words inside of a nice tightly Ziploc bag Who is he talking to? He's talking to the multitudes that nobody would choose. He's talking to the disciples that did not choose Jesus, but he chose them. He chose the small, the weak, 
the meek, the mourners, the poor, those who are bankrupt of any spiritual currency. That's who Jesus chooses to be a light to the world. No one would draft these people in the first round, let alone the 21st round of a pick. But Jesus says, you who are poor, meek, marginalized, you are the ones that are going to be useful to change the world. You are going to be the ones who are a light to the world. And think about it. These are little, tiny lights to shine. Little, tiny specks of salt to preserve the decay and rot of humanity. And to do that, these disciples and us who call ourselves Jesus' disciples, we must be distinct from the rest of the world. We must be distinct from the rest of humanity. How? Will the Beatitudes describe Christian character? Then salt and light describe Christian influence in our neighborhoods and societies. We are to be salt. We are to be light. He'll tell the crowds and us from the mount that first you are to be, this first point, be the salt of the earth. And second point, to be light of the world. If you get anything out of this sermon, if you take one point home, it's, I think what Jesus, if I can sum up Jesus' metaphors here in one simple phrase, he's saying, Christian, don't be useless. Be useful. Don't be useless. Be useful. So first point, salt of the earth. Read along with me in Matthew 5, chapter 13. Oh, sorry, Matthew 5, verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Do you guys notice the distinction that Jesus is making here? Salt can either become like the earth something to be trampled on and walked over, or it can be distinct and useful for its intended use. Its intended use was to preserve food, meaning that Christians are meant to preserve the rotting decay of all humanity. Right? It can, it can seem like the world has improved. It can seem like humanity has improved over, over the centuries. There have been medical advances. Right, we've been watching it happen before our eyes. There have been technological advances. I mean, shoot, we even have pizza crust filled with cheese now. Amazing. But have we improved with how neighbors and societies interact with each other? See, the world can have this facade of improving on the surface. But underneath it all, it's decaying and spoiling. I would, in fact, argue, I don't have time to go into it this, this morning, that the Western world, Europe, on across the 
Atlantic into the States is returning to a more barbaric tribal state because it has no sacred order. Rather than a civilized state that has sacred order, we are just as merciless, just as uncompassionate, and just as unforgiving as the world has always been. It just seems like it's happening more frequently because it's all being videotaped on phones now. But what is true today has always been true. Look what the psalmist writes centuries ago. They, talking about the world, have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. This is the same passage that the Apostle Paul then quotes in Romans. And church, we know that this was our condition apart from the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. We know, Christian, that there is no good inside of us apart from Christ at work inside of us. That we have nothing good to show for apart from the Spirit at work in us and through us. How do we know that from this passage? Look what Jesus says. He doesn't say you ought to become more salty, does it? He says you are salt. You are salt. See, before Jesus ever tells us what we are to do, he first tells us who we are and what we are. We can't get this backwards. It's not doing, then you'll become something. It's you've already become something in the person and work of Jesus. Now be that. It's an identity that you cannot achieve but only receive through the person and work of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. What does salt do? What is salt supposed to do? It's meant to preserve food. It's meant to give taste and bring out the true life within veg, fish, and meats. I don't know if you guys, maybe you've seen the documentary, maybe you've read her book, Samin Nasrat. She wrote this great book called Salt, Fat, Acid, and Heat. And look what she says about salt. Salt, it's fundamental to all good cooking. It enhances flavor. And it even makes food taste more like itself. In short, salt brings food to life. I love, I love this. Jesus says you are salt. You're meant to be used to bring the earth to life. Humanity to life by being salty. Without salt, you don't get all the enhanced flavors that come from the food. It makes the food come more alive, but it also saves food from decay and rot. Because we have to remember, what was the time period that Jesus was speaking in here? Was refrigeration a thing? No, not at all. The main purpose of salt back then was to preserve food. Because within all food, there's this natural bacteria that will cause it to spoil and rot, just like in all humans who are born into sin. There's this natural 
response to decay and rot. And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. This is why you find salt in rooms that cure aged meat. Now, if I don't get, if I don't be careful here, I'm going to have this whole sermon on how salt is amazing and how food is amazing. But I want you to hear this. You are salt to preserve what is primed to decay. Let's think about this. Salt, is it large? It's tiny. Yet it produces these profound responses and flavors in food. But is it one grain of salt that produces the change? Multiple, plurality, many. What we miss in English translations is the you is plural. Proper translation would be y'all, yins, yous guys. Your witness, church, is never meant to be alone. One of the best evangelistic tools that Jesus gives his disciples, he says, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you what? Love one another. Meaning they have to see the way that you love one another. It's a preserving love, a salty love, a love where they can taste and see that the mercy and grace of Jesus is good. This is what Jesus is referring to here. And while the salt is distinct from food and Christians are distinct from the world, we cannot miss the main point here. Salt does not exist for itself. Christians don't exist for themselves. The church does not exist for itself. Salt's main mission is penetrating and flavoring food. Preserving the food. The Christian's main mission is penetrating, going into people's lives, into our neighborhoods to preserve it for the glory of Jesus. Salt, even if it remains a centimeter away from the piece of meat, it is no good and it's useless. And so are Christians who remain away from their neighbors who don't know Jesus. Worthless, useless, Jesus says. Church, are you willing to step into the decay? Are you willing to go into where the world naturally turns away? That if you see someone's life falling apart inside and out, how do you respond? If you see your neighborhood and society's falling apart, how do you respond? What do you do? What do you say? The world's response is to say, it's too draining, it'll cost me too much, I need my me time, I need to worry about me, myself, and I. The Christian, the disciples of Jesus go in and they stay. And isn't this how Jesus met us? He didn't expect us to clean ourselves up first before he came to us. No, he comes, meets us where we are, stays with us, and doesn't leave us where we are. 
Christians don't run away from neighborhoods, problems, economic problems, societal problems. They step in. They dig in deep. And we see this in our Lord, in our King, Jesus. What was Jesus doing prior to declaring the kingdom of God? He was demonstrating. He was a display of the kingdom of God. I mean, if you just look just back in chapter 4, he was healing, healing the blind, healing the lame, feeding the hungry, giving sight to the blind. It's both a demonstration and a declaration. In order to do this, Jesus says you have to remain salty. If salt loses its taste, it cannot be restored, he says. To be effective, Christians must retain Christ-likeness like salt must retain its saltiness. Because salt, it can become impure. Salt can lose its distinct character traits. How? By being infected with impurities in the water or the air. And I wonder, church, where is it that you're being affected with the impurities of the world? Where is it that you're letting the doctrines and the deconstruction of the world seep into your life where you can become useless? Maybe it's your view on sex. Where sex is just a performative act for your own pleasure. Or maybe for some of you, it's pornography. Stats don't lie. doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a non-Christian, if you're a man or a woman. Same number across the board are looking at porn regularly. And I want to know, are you adding to the decay and rot that is the objectification of image bearers? Or are you going to be useful and chop off your hand, gouge out your eye, so that you can be useful for the kingdom? Spouses, parents, can, can I speak to you for a moment? What are your conversations like when you talk about your husband or your wife or your kids? Are they distinct from the grumble and the complaining nature of all of your non-Christian neighbors and friends, or do you add to the decay? Are you being useful or useless? Employees, how do you speak or treat your boss or other fellow employees at work? Are you adding to the rot within the workplace? Are you being salt and being useful to preserve that which is good? Jesus says, I don't want you to be useless, church. I want you to be useful. You are the salt of the earth. That's the first point. But then he says, you are the light of the world. Look in your Bibles with me from verse 13 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, like me, you might be asking, what in the world does light and darkness have to do with a city? I mean, right? It seems like Jesus is mixing metaphors within a metaphor. Anybody else a little bit confused by that? Or just me? Okay, maybe just me. I mean, at first glance, it it can seem a bit confusing, right? But we have to remember that cities were typically found in valleys. Because what's in a valley? Fresh water source. Flat land to grow crops. But God's people were always meant to be on a hill. A light shining to the nations on Mount Zion. Look what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. He says, I, this is the Lord speaking through his prophet, I will make you a, can you say it, as a light for the nations, that my salvation, that is his good news, his euangelion, may reach to the end of the earth. Listen to this, it would take great cost and sacrifice to build a city up on a hill. takes great cost and sacrifice to let lights shine continually from those homes. And so if we cover a light with a basket, not only would it darken the homes that are within the community of that city, there'd be no light dispelling from that hill where travelers can see the city on the road that they are traveling on. We have to remember that roads back in the day were dangerous spots as they traveled from city to city and town to town. No, no streetlights, right? No electricity. I mean, we remember the story of the Good Samaritan. Where did that poor Jewish man fall to robbers and get beaten and left for dead? Was it within a city? It was on the dark and dangerous road. For a weary traveler, a wayward traveler, in the darkness of the paths and the roads of the ancient world, a city would be like a breath of fresh air when they saw those lights. Food and beverage was there. Community was there. Rest and revivement were in these cities. Rest awaited them. Christian, do you hear what we are to be for the rest of the world. We are to be a hope of rest and refuge and revivement because the whole world, we are to be distinct. The whole world is full of darkness. Jesus just got done preaching about these things in a synagogue back in chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, he says, the people dwelling in darkness, there's the distinction, now have seen a great light. He's talking about himself. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. He is this light on a hill. He is the one where he's saying, this is where refuge, where revivement, where life can be found in me. Now, how many of you have ever seen a lighthouse before in person? They're they're, they're kind of amazing. My, My family and I, we would travel, my parents would take 
brother and sister every year down to the Outer Banks in North Carolina, and there was lighthouses everywhere, and beautiful ones with the, you know, the old school stripes on them to brick ones. We'd be able to go in and take the spiral staircase all the way to the top where the light was. It's amazing. But lighthouse did they they do not exist for tourists. That's not their purpose. Their purpose is to let weary sailors who are at stormy seas know that land is in sight. Why? So they don't run their ships aground in the dark and stormy nights of the seas. This is what the church ought to be, so that our neighbors and our neighborhoods don't sink their lives on the rocky sin and darkness that exists within this world. We are to be a light church to the nations. And Jesus is saying, don't be useless. Don't turn off the light. Don't put a a bowl overneath the candle, or else you and your neighbors will be walking around in darkness. He wants us to, to show off our good works. He wants you to be on the street corner showing off good works. Later, he will rebuke the Pharisees for showing off their good works. Why? Because they're doing it in order to be seen by others. But these good works that he's talking about here in verse 16 is not for our glory, but for Jesus' glory. They're not works to earn God's love. They're works to show off God's love to the world so that he gets the glory and that our neighbors become Christians. That's what he means, but they will give glory to your father. You will have one and the same father because you have been saved by the same older brother who is Jesus Christ. They will give glory. Good works here in this passage. Can you say display? Can you say declaration? Good works is both a display and a declaration of the kingdom of God. You see, if you only declare the gospel of the kingdom of God and have no good works to show for it, James, the apostle, says your faith is dead. It's no faith at all. But if you only just do good works and good deeds without declaring the gospel, then you're no better than a glorified 501c3 nonprofit. The church Christians must be committed to a display of the gospel and a declaration of the gospel. It's both and. And I love that Jesus doesn't say, pastors, let your light shine before others. He's talking to ordinary, everyday Christians that have been changed by the extraordinary grace of God. He's saying, Christian, let your light shine. Historian Michael Green and Alan Kreider, in a a book uh, called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, they said that 80% of their evangelism and good deeds were not done by the leaders of the church, but ordinary, everyday members of the church. That this is the job not of the pastors or the elders or just the deacons, but by you, church, 
You are the light of the world. And people paid attention to these ordinary, everyday Christians because their lives were being transformed by God's grace, and it looked nothing like anybody else in their community. See, Christians in the early century, while they're existing within the Roman Empire, who actually persecuted Christians for being Christians, Christians weren't a subculture. They weren't against culture. They were counterculture. They lived counter to the culture around them. See, in the Roman Empire was dark, filled with sin. And the church, following the commands of Jesus and the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ, had five distinct characteristics about their good works. Where both Alan Crider and a guy named Tim Keller, they list these five distinctions in their separate works. Here Here are those distinctions that the church had from the Roman world. The church was multiracial and multi-ethnic. The Roman world just wanted one ethnicity. Two, they were highly committed to caring for the poor and the marginalized, which the Romans thought were worthless. They had non-retaliatory and they were marked by commitment to forgiveness. That even when somebody punched them on the right cheek, they would turn to them the left to offer them peace. Number four, the early church, go to the next one, was strongly and practically against abortion, which was rampant in the Roman Empire and infanticide. Number five, the church was committed to a revolutionizing sex ethic, where sex at that time was only good for someone's appetite, just for pleasure. Listen to what Tim Keller writes in his book, How to Reach the West Again. The early Christian community was both offensive and attractive, but believers did not construct this community as a way to reach Roman culture. Rather, each of the five elements listed above characterized the early church because Christians sought to submit to, say it out loud with me, biblical authority. They are all commands as well as implications of the gospel. Do you see? Do you see what he's saying? That the word of God was a to their feet. And it was both offensive to the Romans and attractive. We talked about this last week, that when we share Christ with others, they will hate us. They will persecute us. They will shame us. They will reject us. But Jesus is saying here that some are going to be attracted to you. They're going to draw towards your light because they're going to see your communities as a place of rest and refuge and revivement from the darkness that exists in the world. Now, I wonder, when you saw that list that I just brought up, I wonder how you would categorize yourself or different groups in our society. Like when we look at those first two, there's a group in America that we would say holds to only these two, right? We would say in a simplistic way, this would characterize the political left, right? Then we look at the last two, number four and five, this might constitute the political right. 
And they propagate this us versus them mentality. Because none of them have number three. Non-retaliatory, marked by a commitment to forgiveness. Church, for you to be light, it's not to follow the dark paths of the left or the right. And I'm fearful that some of you are under enormous pressure right now to conform to one or the other. Just wonder, if you were to look back over your social media feeds or your conversations with neighbors, do you sound more like an ambassador for a political party that will one day end? Or are you an ambassador for the kingdom of heaven unto which will never end and will never fade and will never perish? You see, when we're under this enormous pressure to give ourselves either to the first two or the last two, we become enslaved to the darkness of the us versus them tribalism and mentality that exists in our world today. Our witness is then sapped of all spiritual power and credibility with non-Christians because we think we can only ascribe to one or two of those things. And then it becomes this us versus them mentality me versus you mentality, but the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't us versus the world. It's us for the world. We are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden for God's glory's sake and for the good of our neighbor. And so I want to know, church, where are you compromising? Which one of these five biblical truths and light are you choosing to hide under a basket and therefore asked and abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ? Which one are you more prone to post about more and then be more prone to be silent about? Were you so concerned about your neighbors, your family, co-workers, or the facade of a hundred friends on Facebook might think of you, so you take your basket and you cover the truth with it? You cover your convictions and your actions. And you might say, what if they hate me? It's a very real promise that some will. What if they reject me? You might say, there's a very real promise that some will. But remember, they're not rejecting you. You are never persecuted because of you. You are persecuted because of Jesus, and they hated him first. And I'm curious if you ever ask yourself the question, not what if they hate me and reject me? I wonder if you ever ask the question, if I choose to take off the basket and let the light shine a little bit, what if they respond? What if they respond by drawing near? What if they respond in repentance and belief? Because Jesus is saying that some will in this passage. That is the end result so that they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. Don't you see your neighbors' marriages are a wreck and they need light. Your classmates' lives are being flushed down the drain because they think that a degree will give them worth and purpose, and they need Jesus to give them purpose and worth. 
Your coworkers are working their fingers down to the bone because they think that their identity is based on what they do for a career. And they need Jesus to show them that they can have an identity based on not what they do, but what he has done for them. Who will show them the light? I don't have access to your classmates. You do. I don't have access to your coworkers. You do. I don't have access to your neighbors. You do. You are the light of the world. This is not to make you great. This is not for your glory. This is not for Renaissance's glory. For our praise. This is for the praise of the glory of God and the good of our neighbors that they might enjoy the glory of God. You see, when I told my neighbors that we we're going to be leaving the neighborhood, why? Why did they react the way they did? Can I let you in on a little secret? It wasn't because of me. It wasn't because of me they reacted the way they did. It's because of Christ in me. Just as the moon reflects the sun's brightness, so when I turn and face Jesus, I reflect him. We are image bearers. We are mere images meant to reflect the glory and the light of Jesus. Isn't this an amazing passage where Jesus doesn't say, you need to become brighter? No, he says, you are light. You are the light of the world. Meaning it's not something that you do in order to become brighter. We can't get this backwards. You don't work and then you become something. No, it's Jesus worked to make you something. He made you light. How did he do this? Well, the psalmist says that we would one day, our righteousness would shine as bright as the noonday sun. You know why it shines as bright as the noonday sun? It's because the light of the world came down and out of heaven to climb up on a hill and to be killed in utter darkness. From noon till three, what happened at the crucifixion? The sky fell black. Jesus not only had the darkness of our sin and the rot and decay of our nature fall on him, but the sky fell black. And he was buried in a tomb to rot and decay. But on the third day, the spirit of the living God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus died in darkness so that you can be the light of the world. He took on your shame, your sin, your darkness so that you could be useful. You could be full of light, not by anything you do, but solely by what he has done in your life. Like we've said throughout the sermon and you've heard before, it's an identity that you cannot achieve by what you do. It's an identity that is received by faith and repentance in what Jesus has done. This is our hope. This is our role. And so our response right now is not to turn around and go out here and try to be brighter. If you go out here and try to do this, you'll fail. You'll become useless. The response today is to turn and face the noonday sun, which is Jesus Christ, 
so that the light can shine in you and through you. And when we respond in faith, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives inside of you. And he doesn't just come at one moment and decide to leave. No, he stays and he penetrates. He stays and gets into the dark nook and ugly crannies of our life to take away the rot and the spoil of our own sinful nature. Why? So that we can be more like Christ and be salty to our neighbors and to our neighborhoods. And so church, what's left for us to do? It's to be who you are, where you are. To be salt, to stay lit where you are. Why? Because the world is longing. The world is longing for a meaning in life that suffering and a virus cannot take away. And we have it. It's Jesus. The world is longing for a satisfaction that is not based on circumstances. And we have it. It's found in Jesus. So taste and see that the Lord is good. The world is longing for a freedom that doesn't reduce community and relationships and sex to transactions. And it's Jesus. The world is longing for an identity that isn't fragile and is based on performances or the exclusion of others. And it's Jesus. We have it. The world is longing for a way to both deal with the guilt and their lack of forgiveness of others without succumbing to bitterness. And we have it. It's in Jesus. Because he forgives us not based on what we do, but based on what he has done. And the world so often right now is seeking justice that not, does not turn us into oppressors ourselves. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus, the merciful one, who does not return revilement for revilement. And the world is looking for a way to face the future, especially face death itself with poise and with peace. And we have that light. It's in the resurrection of Jesus, where one day when he returns, the Apostle John tells us that night will be as bright as day. Church, Jesus wants to know, will you be useless? Because he's made you to be useful. Let us be salt to this decaying world. For isn't that what the Spirit is doing to our souls right now, even as I preach? And let us be light to a dark world. For isn't that what Jesus has done for us? Not because we became a little brighter, because he were, we were full of darkness, and he shined his light into our life. Now let us go and be the same. Let us not be useless. Let's be salt. Let us stay lit and be useful. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we ask that you... Thank you.